0: Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, if you're new here, November's the month, the last several years, we've taken the month to focus on generosity. You know, a lot of churches are hesitant to talk about this because people are very um, partial to their stuff, but there's been a culture change here to where we've actually celebrated the opportunity to give. And you know, last year was, was amazing. When you put together the 200 plus Thanksgiving baskets, the 960 some shoe boxes, the Christmas Eve benevolence offering, all the candy donated for the Fall Fest, on top of all the labor and it's 80,000 plus dollars of extra giving just over a couple month period that you all gave and I know our church has a great heart to meet people's needs. And you know the care center that's opening up downstairs, it's going to open this week. We're going to have a grand opening here shortly, um, but we're finally able to move in. There's some individuals in this church who gave without being asked to give to make that possible. And uh, we're just so grateful for the spirit of generosity. And I believe what God is teaching us is there's such a joy in sharing with others, of using the resources God has given us, that we wouldn't want it any other way. And so, if you're new today and you think, oh, here the church is going to talk about money, you're being invited to be part of something that will radically change your life. Because what the church teaches through the scriptures is radically different from what the culture teaches when it comes to money and possessions. For example, our culture teaches us that happiness is found in having, in receiving. And yet, the scripture tells us that true joy is found in the giving, in the releasing. Culture says that what you have is yours. The Bible says what you have is actually God's and we are stewarding it. The culture says you always need more. The scripture tells us that you have enough. Culture says go into debt to get what you want and God says live within your means. Culture says you will die one day, so enjoy it while you have it. Scripture says put treasures ahead so you can enjoy it for eternity. And it's just a different mindset. And you need to know this. What God wants for you is so much greater than what God wants from you. If you have the mindset of God's trying to squeeze something out of you, steal something from you, take something, what God is saying, live life with open hands. Because when you do that, here's what happens. You have peace. Knowing that there's a Heavenly Father that's taking care of you, that's watching out for your needs. You have blessing, that God surprises you with things beyond even your imagination of blessings that fall into your life. You have growth, spiritual growth, as you grow in faith, trusting in God, as you grow in the joy of serving other people. There's such a blessing. There's freedom, freedom to actually give without, without regret, freedom to watch others succeed and receive without feeling envious, jealous of what others have. What God wants for you is so much greater than what God wants from you. And so we're going to look at a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, open there. If you have a bulletin on the back, of some places you can jot some notes down and, and some things you can fill in, maybe add to it to follow up in your own personal study. But um, the Apostle Paul was one of the, the first men that God tapped the shoulder on the shoulder and, and sent out as a missionary. And he went to all these cities in Asia Minor and began to plant churches. And one of the churches he planted was in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city, very wealthy city, had a thriving trade there, but also had the worship of a goddess named Diana, or some Bibles say Artemis. And Timothy was a pastor in this town. Now, if you go back in your Bible and look at Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes to Ephesus, he confronts this idolatry because the worship of any other god is idolatry. So Paul challenges them to give up this idol, this this idolatry. Well, there's a man named Demetrius who runs a silversmith business. He makes little shrines that assist people in their worship, and he's ticked off because Paul's hurting his business, not only his, but all the others who have businesses related to the worship of this false god, Diana. You know, it's interesting that people have always capitalized on, on spiritual hunger to make a buck, whether it be... The money changers in the temple that Jesus confronted to the abuses of the Catholic church in the Middle Ages selling indulgences that supposedly would buy people out of purgatory or to modern-day televangelist scandals. There's religious people who will peddle a gospel that says God wants you to be uh, selfishly rich, that if you just do these certain things, God will will pour out so much money. God doesn't cater to selfishness, but God does does bless servants. Servants who see money as something to be used for God's glory. And so I, I don't want to tell you today how to get rich. There are businesses that come into Colorado Springs all the time that'll tell you how to invest, how to flip properties, how to do, do um, multi-level marketing and how you can get rich. I, 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 don't, I don't want to tell you how to get rich. I want to, I want to tell you that you're already rich. Because it all begins with this realization. This realization that I am Rich. Not I'm going to be or I want to be. I am rich. Right now, today, I am rich. Now, some of you will say, Pastor, I can't say that. I I don't really feel like I'm rich. But you are. You know, I grew up in a home. I thought we were pretty well off in my house. We had six children, mom and dad lived in a a house. But I, I started to go over to friends' houses when I was in junior high and high school. And I, I noticed that there were houses that had carpet in every room. We didn't have carpet in a single room in my house. I thought, that's pretty neat. And take your shoes off and fill that stuff between your toes. That's kind of nice down there. They had windows that slid open this way, doors, patio doors. I've never seen a patio door in my life. We never had patio doors. They had more than one bathroom in their house. We had one bathroom. They had this box called the microwave. They had all kinds of channels because of cable TV. They had a garage that was actually attached to their house. They didn't have to walk 100 yards to get to the garage. And, you know, I looked at those people and I said, now those are rich people. (laughs) But the fact is, you and I are rich. We just have to look back a couple generations to our ancestors. That the lifestyle we live today is far beyond what they even imagined. In fact, most of our grandparents and great-grandparents would think we live in utopia right now. Because of what we have, even as far back or short back as 1970s, only 60% of the people owned a microwave, 50% of homes had air conditioning, 93% had a color TV. Those are standard things for young married couples today. We, we have such high expectations of things our grandparents never dreamed of doing. The kinds of vacations we have, the electronic gadgetry we have, the vehicles we drive in were just a dream. And you don't have to go back years to see that you just have to look today around the world if you make thirty two thousand four hundred dollars if your household income is thirty two thousand four hundred dollars or more you're in the top one percent of the world's wage earners the top one percent for America that's borderline poverty level but you know what's so interesting is is the, the pictures of the past of people in poverty were skeletal bodies of malnourished people and today, the mark of poverty in our culture is obesity. Do you, do you know that? It's, it's because we're eating all these bad things. We have plenty to eat, but we're eating so much junk. A study was done to ask people what they considered to be rich. And it didn't matter how much you made. It, it, it tended to be twice as much as you made. So if you made $25,000 a year, rich was 50000 you made $60,000 a year, rich was $120,000. If you made $200,000 a year, you weren't rich, but the $400,000 people were really rich. And you get this? Being rich is a moving target. We never get to the place where we're rich because it's always somebody else, but the truth is we are rich. I want you to say with me, I am rich. Let's say it. I, I am, am rich. Want don't you turn to your neighbor and say, you are rich. Now, do you believe it? Do you believe it? God wants us to recognize the fact that we are richer than we can imagine. We need to shift our eyes from what we don't have to what we already have. Here's such a critical point. It's not what you possess that matters. It's what possesses you. It's not what you possess. Cars, homes, bank accounts, investment portfolios. It's not what you have. It's not your possessions. It's what possesses you. And I'll tell you this. When God's kingdom grabs you, When you're seized by this call of God upon your life, when that grabs a hold of you, you start to radically change everything about how you live. All the priorities start to flip in your life. And it's a beautiful thing to be seized by the kingdom of God. And we need that to drive us in our lives. We need to be captured by this kingdom that says there's a world out there that that Jesus is, is infiltrating. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're his wallet to make a difference in the world. And so as we open up this passage from 1 Timothy, we're going to look at three simple principles regarding possessions. I want to ask you if you'd be humble enough to say, God, speak to me. And as you speak, I want to say yes to that. So, Father, we come before you thanking you for the sacred scriptures. I know this was written almost 2,000 years ago, but, Lord, it's so true today, so relevant to our culture today. So speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who are possessed by something greater than our possessions, that we are possessed by the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. First principle is this, that wealth is spiritual. True wealth is spiritual, because Paul says, and in fact, this passage follows one when he talks about people who want to get rich. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to get ahead in life? This is how you do it godliness with contentment. The philosopher Seneca said, money has never yet made anyone rich. And we know money doesn't buy happiness, it does allow you to have some fun experiences but it doesn't buy happiness long-term. You've seen grumpy, rich people. You've seen happy, poor people. There's a, there's a wealth that he speaks of here that is deeper than financial. It goes deep down into our heart. See, when the Bible talks about God and his riches, more often than not, it speaks of his knowledge and his grace and his love and his kindness and his mercy. The riches of God. That there are riches that are in some ways, kind of intangible. It's it's not the physical things. It's the deeper spiritual things in our lives. And so he says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. What is godliness? What is godliness? Well, Paul actually tells Timothy a couple chapters earlier this in in chapter 4. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Now, I want to look at that. I've highlighted two words. godless. And godly. And I think they're put there intentionally to show that they're opposites. Godless means God is absent from it, God is not part of it. Godly is the ex opposite. Train yourself to have God be every part of your life. Train yourself to acknowledge God's direction, God's presence, God's wisdom in every matter of your life. And he follows this verse up by saying, to train yourselves. To be godly, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That word training is a Greek word from which we get the word gymnasium. It means just exercise. Make a practice of being godly. Make a practice. You know, before you make decisions, pray about it. What would God think? What does God want me to do about this purchase? What does God want me to do in response to this request to give? Let God be the center of it all. Live a godly life. Do that. Marry that with contentment, and you will be incredibly rich, more wealthy than you'd realize. Psalm 23, excuse me, contentment is the next thing. Godliness with contentment. What is contentment? It's sufficiency. It's having enough, freedom from worry, freedom from want. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. want. Why? Why won't I want? Because I have everything I need. I'm with the shepherd. I don't have a lot of wants. David writes in Psalm 16, that apart from the Lord, he has nothing good. That everything good in life comes from the Lord. And in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 16, he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. God, you've you kind of put a boundary line around me. There, there's, this is my lot in life. We have to actually use that phrase, my lot in life. And he says, God, you've allowed it to fall in pleasant places. Do you know, you didn't get to choose what family you were born to, what country you were born into, how you looked, whether you are male or female, your skills. Most of that stuff you didn't get to choose. God chose it for you. That's your lot in life. That's kind of the, 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 the cards that you were dealt. Now, it doesn't mean you say, well, God, I guess I won't change any of that or, or improve on it. Obviously, you guys looked in front of the mirror today, and some of you did a lot of altering from what you looked like when you woke up. That's okay. We're glad you did that. We like that. It's making the best of what God has given you. But there's a place we say, God, I'm okay with the lot. I'm not going to envy others who have a different lot, whose portion is different, because you are my portion. That's why contentment is spiritual. It's saying, God, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for allowing me just to have life. I didn't deserve it. It was a gift to me. And so I thank you for that. I'm grateful for what I have. Nobody owes me anything. Contentment is proof that I truly believe God is enough. But here's the danger. Our culture has convinced us that God is not enough. Because when God doesn't give us what we want, we pull out the credit card and say, but I'm going to get it anyway. And we have a culture that has gotten so far into debt. It's the worst it's ever been in the history of America. Well, the last few years have been. We actually were getting better the last few years. As the economy has improved, we're sliding back into a lifestyle where not only do we put what we might consider good things on credit, like buying a house or college education, starting a business, those might be considered permissible debt or good debt because they're investing in the future, but consumable debt is dangerous. When we buy the pizza on credit card, when we buy our cars on credit, when when we put things off to, to promise future money to, what we're saying is, God, since you haven't provided, I will obligate myself, and then I'll demand that you provide. That you better provide, because I made the decision to get that car, to get that house, and all these things, and now you better provide for me. And it doesn't work that way. It gets us in all kinds of trouble. The reason that so many of us can't even tithe, tithe is giving the first 10%, which God says, give to me to show you trust me. The reason many of us can't do that is, is you can't give the master the 10% when master card gets 22%. And it's a matter of trust. Do I trust God? And if God wants me to have it, he'll enable me to afford it. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a spiritual issue. God is a source of our true spiritual wealth. The second principle from this passage is that treasures are temporary. Treasures are temporary for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We all start our lives on planet Earth as naked babies. Now quickly we get clothes, we get wrapped up, we get a diaper put on us, we get a nookie put in our mouth, and you know, we get these little cute outfits as we grow up. Um, we get all that stuff added to us. But you know, you start with nothing and you end with nothing. I know we dress up the, the body at the funeral, but... That those clothes don't go with them. We end life with nothing. There's these bookends of nakedness in our lives. And there's a dash in between. The dash is our lives. And some, some would call that the mad dash. The mad dash to get as much as you can. You know, run crazy, work hard, gather as much as you can, to accumulate it. Why? To leave it all behind when I die. That's what it seems like so many of us do. It's a race to accumulate only to leave it behind. And we're so bad at accumulating stuff. I'm guilty of this. Go around my house, I look at stuff in rooms and go, man, we haven't used that for years. There's an old VCR player. There's an old TV. We still have a refrigerator in our garage that doesn't work great, but it's still there. We've got tables and furniture, you know, all kinds of stuff. We have a whole industry of storage, like little, little plastic storage containers all over a house. Open up a drawer. We actually have cupboard spaces just for storage containers to put stuff in. <laughs> and, and then we, then at the holidays, we pull out all these plastic tubs with holiday stuff in it. We have... We have boxes to store our stuff. And then we have all these storage units around the city. You know what's in those storage units? Stuff. (laughs) Stuff. We have so much stuff. We've actually fueled a whole industry called thrift stores. And you know what they sell? Our excess stuff. You know, I don't want it. Let's give it to Goodwill. It's because we have so much stuff. George Carlin, years ago, he's a comedian, said, your house is a place to keep your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You can see that when you're taking off in an airplane. You look down, you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. All the little piles of stuff. And when you leave your house, you've got to lock it up. Wouldn't want someone to come by and take some of your stuff. That's what your house is, a place to keep your stuff while well, you'll go out and get more stuff. Seriously, how much is enough? And what are, we, what are we going to do with it all? We get upset with CEOs who are making absurd amounts of money or athletes or actors and actresses. I mean, you look at a, a basketball player or a baseball player, says, you know, what? every time that guy swings his bat, he's just made $1,200 more Or every time that guy makes a basket, he's just made $10,000. You're kidding. People work for a year, part-time jobs to make that much money man came to church here a few weeks ago. He was a, a guy who worked with the ministry when I lived in Arizona. His dad owned a business called KCRV. It was here in Colorado Springs. It was their main headquarters. And they sold a few years ago uh, for several million dollars. And my friend was telling me that they invested that money in aggressive investments and most of it vanished when that market crashed. You know, it, it's amazing how... Things just disappear. How we have to realize that things are temporary. When Anna Nicole Smith married this filthy rich multi millionaire, people asked, you know, I think she's just getting married because of the money. She loves this man for the money. And uh, she died a few years ago. Do you know how much she left? All of it. Every dime of it. Can't take it with you. We cannot take any of this stuff with us. It's temporary. It's not going to go. Some of us remember um, the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job ends up losing a lot of things in his life. Loses his farm and his kids and his health. His wife tells him that he should curse God. And Job in his infinite wisdom says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I came with nothing, I'm going to end with nothing. Hold the stuff loosely. David in Psalm 49, I think your notes say 29, but it's actually chapter 49, verses 16 and 17. David says, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. They will take nothing with them when they die. It will not go with them. And where they're going is not a pleasant place. When they made their stuff their God, it destroyed their life. Hold the stuff loosely. It's temporary. Years ago, a columnist named Irma Bombeck, she, if you, any of you remember her, she's a, she passed away several years ago. But Irma Bombeck was a, was a humorist. She wrote a book called If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, What Am I Doing in the Pit? One of her famous prayers was, Lord, if you can't make me thin, make my friends look fat. So... <laughs> Funny lady, when she was uh, nine years old, she, um, her father died. She grew up in an economically depressed area with her in-laws, yet she always wanted to be a writer. Well, she wrote a book about kids struggling with cancer, and it changed her life. And then in 1991, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent a mastectomy. Years later, her kidneys began to shut down. She went in for dialysis four times a day. It was during this period of time, she says, she had a recurring dream. In this dream, she was standing before the Lord. And God would say to her, So empty your pockets. What have you got left of your life? Any dreams that were unfulfilled? Any unused talent that I gave you when you were born that you still have left? Any unsaid compliments or bits of love that you haven't spread around? And Irma would say back to the Lord, I have nothing to return. I've spent everything you gave me. I'm as naked as the day I was born you want to leave naked. You want to leave putting everything out on the table with your life. You don't want to be someone who dies with unused talent, stored up resources, unspoken things that God gave you to give to someone else. Our lives are a matter of giving of ourselves, of spending ourselves on something greater than us, something that outlives us. As Paul said at the very end of his life, my life has been poured out like a drink offering. Are you pouring your life off? Someone once said that God puts us back together in order to give us away to others. And I think that's the summary of the Christian life. God heals us up, gets our life together, and then he starts saying, okay, I'm going to start giving you away to people who, who I need to reach. You're my agent through which I'm going to reach them. And so I want to use your time and your talents and your resources to bless other people, to reach them. The Christian life isn't a matter of coasting to get to the finish line so I can go to heaven. It's being used by God in every aspect of our lives. Things are temporary. And then the last principle is this. The basics should satisfy. The basics should be enough. But if we have food and clothing, Paul says, we will be content with that. Right. Food and clothing? What about the house, Paul? Can you throw a house in there? Well, I imagine in this culture because of being in the, kind of the Middle East and it's warmer, maybe he didn't think of that as being as critical as a, as a need as in our culture where winter comes, you, you definitely need a house. But, but how many of us would say if it was even like food, clothing, and house, I'll be content with that? Because we're not content with that. Food, what kind of food? How much food? Where are we going to eat today? You know, I want to I pick what kind of food I eat. Clothes, not just any Clothes, I want name brand clothes, stylish clothes. House? Well, I, I want to pick what kind of house, how many rooms, what neighborhood. You know, we want to have the say in all those things. But, you know, for many people in other cultures, food and clothing, maybe a little place, a tent, place to keep warm, a little hut, they're content with that. In the book Progress Paradox, Social scientist Greg Easterbrook says there's no generation in history as wealthy as our generation. That 99% of the people that live in Europe and in the United States of America, Canada, live far greater ways than any other people in history, including people of royalty. That we have things that they never experienced, such as the bounty of food, medical aid, instant communication. Global travel, home ownership, educational opportunities, leisure time, vacation time, opportunities for women. In the 1950s, if you wanted to buy a McDonald's hamburger or cheeseburger, it would, co- it would take a half hour of your work to do that. Today, it's three to eight minutes of your day to earn a McDonald's cheeseburger. He, he, here's something real interesting. He says, with all the prosperity we have today, we are ten times more likely to be depressed than people in the 1950s. If you ever needed evidence that money doesn't buy happiness, it's right there. We have more than we've ever had before, and yet we're more depressed than ever before. And you know what's even beyond that? We have a culture of complainers. People feel entitled to stuff. People who want more, who clamor that they deserve more. And so it's just so true that the secret of contentment is not in having a bunch of stuff. It doesn't work. That is not the secret. Now, get to the secret in a minute. In most cultures, the basics are satisfying. Food and clothing. And you know what? Kids get that, I think. Kids get simplicity of life. The holidays are coming up and Christmas time and you think you got your child a nice, fancy little toy and they open up the box and they set the toy aside and they play with the box and the bow. Because they're content with something simple. I was reading a book on contentment the other day, and the author, Richard Swenson, says young children find equal delight in the puddle or the pigeon, a worm or a waffle. Throw in the puppy, and joy goes off the charts. That's so true. Several years ago, when my old church did a, a fall fest, there was a family in the church whose dog had puppies. And they asked if they could give away the puppies at the fall fest. I said, sure. There's like eight little puppies. The kids would love little puppies. So all of a sudden that night, you're seeing kids walking around holding little puppies. I mean, they're the envy of the crowd. Like, where'd you get that? Oh, I played the little game over there and I won a puppy. Well, I want to go win a puppy too. (laughs) But here's the problem. They would come in to tell mom and dad, look what I won. (laughs) You go put that back. (laughs) No, I won as my puppy. (laughs) No, no, we can't take a puppy home. (gasps) And they just start bawling because that little puppy, like that was the highlight of their night. <laughs> Kids are so simple. They get thrilled over balloons, little things, colorful things. And so when David writes about contentment, I love this the, the words in Psalm 131. Listen to David as he says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And watch this. But I have calmed and quieted myself I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Like a little baby that has just nursed. David says, I'm like that little child. I can nestle in my heavenly father's arms and the world is all good. Don't you want that kind of contentment? You don't have to be concerned about all these big things in life. All, All the great matters, the stock market and all these things. He said, I just got a daddy who loves me a whole bunch and I'm gonna be okay with him. Like a wean child. We need to be childlike in our attitude toward our stuff. We have it good. You know, in most cultures, people have to work every day. Sometimes mom and the kids all are working too. Isn't it amazing in our culture? We can have homes where one person works and the whole family is provided for, and that one person only works five days? Isn't that amazing? That's unheard of in most cultures. Where they're working six, seven days a week and everybody's working long days. And when it comes to food, boy, we have it so well. We have it so well. I was reading a book called Hungry Planet, What the, World's e- what the World Eats. It showed the contrast in the diets, how much people eat, kind of stuff they eat. And here's some examples, some pictures and some typical scenarios. Here's an American family, two teenagers. Their, their weekly food budget is $343. Of course, I'm sure each boy gets their own pizza. If you have a teenager, you know what that's like. All the soda, all the snacks. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to eat there. That's, that's kind of a typical American diet. Well, let's look at another culture. Kuwait. In Kuwait, $221 weekly food budget. There's still a table full of things. But then you go to some other countries like Mongolia. $40 for their, for their week. And, th- and that's going to carry that family for the whole week. Or Ecuador, where it's $32. This is what we'll, they'll have for the eat. But then you look at a country, Chad, a $1.23. That's not a meal. That's not one person's meal. That's for the whole family for the whole week. And many of you spent more than that at the coffee bar this morning. You could have bought that family food for two weeks. Do, do you realize how well we have it? I, I'm embarrassed now to go to buffets. I... I I'm not going to be hypocritical and say I never go. I do go. I've gone to Takano's and Mongolian Grill and that stuff, and I like those things. It's a real treat. But you know what? I don't make a habit of it. For one, I feel so bloated afterwards because I want to eat as much as I can since I paid for it. And then I feel sick afterwards. If I go to another restaurant, you know what? I actually have leftovers to take home. But it's this mindset of what is enough? How much is enough? And here's the big question we're going to be looking at in these weeks to come. What's for me and what's for someone else? What's for me, my needs, and what is for me to give to someone else? Because we have to make choices all the time. And I think that's where you and I live in our world. We understand the needs. And I would say something like a a phone is a need in our culture. You have to have communication. And you might even press me so far to say, Pastor, I think you really need a cell phone nowadays. Well, I I could go for that to you. The communication now and the the ability of cell phones to, to text and send pictures, all that, it's incredible. But here's the decisions we have to make. What kind of plan? What model of phone? How much memory? What kind of features? What kind of accessories? Because I'll tell you you what's going to happen is in a few months, an upgrade is coming out. And you're going to be behind someone else. And you're going to look and say, now I need that one. I need it. Really, when do you say, enough? This is enough. I have it. My car gets me from A to B. It's got air conditioning and heat. I'm good. Tires are good. It's a safe car. Why do we feel that? You know, I've had this car for four years. I need to upgrade. Why? I've had this phone for a couple years, time to upgrade. Why? We need to ask ourselves the hard questions. And here's where the godly part comes in. God, do you want me to do that? Is that what you would want for me? And I'm not going to tell you what the decision is for you and for me. I just, I'm just asking you, bring God into the, into the decision-making process. Because it's very likely that God says, I've already met your needs sufficiently and I'm providing for you to be a resource to, be, to benefit other people. And that's the tough place you and I live in. Now Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, found the secret of contentment because he, he knows that you can have a lot and be discontent, you can have a little and be discontent, but the secret isn't the stuff. Here's what the secret is. Philippians chapter four. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the secret. I can do this through him who gives me strength. It's through him that he is the source of true contentment. That if I have him, it doesn't matter if I have a little bit of stuff or a lot of stuff. I am content in him. In Hebrews chapter 13, The writer there tells us that God is enough. Keep your eye, keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, "Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you." Don't don't chase after money, because you got me. I'm not going anywhere. So we we focus on God, that God truly is sufficient. God promises to meet our needs. We can trust Him. So my intent today is not to make you feel guilty because you're so rich. It's to make you grateful for what he's given you. To be free from this attitude of, you know, I need more to be happy. No, you don't. Or if I could be like those rich people. No, you are the rich people. (laughs) I am the rich people. We are the rich people. And it's okay to say, I am rich. Have you heard people talk about their age like you're as old as you feel? You know, you may have a 60th birthday, and you say, "You know, but I feel like I'm 45." Um, you know, my wife reminds me of the wrinkles and all that, and they lie. They, you know, they tell me a real age. But you know, I actually feel like I'm in the early 40s. That's how I feel mentally, physically, and I think it's true with wealth. If you see yourself as a rich person because of what God has given you, you are rich. It's a matter of attitude not of acquisition, not of what we have, not what we accumulate. It's not comparing ourselves to anybody else, saying, God, you are enough. There was once a father who was pretty well off and wanted to show his son the value of wealth and how he didn't want to go down a path that would lead to poverty. So he took him to the country to stay at an old farmhouse. And as he stayed at this farmhouse, the boy got to see how they lived, very different lifestyle. And on their way back from this trip, the dad said, well, son, what did you learn? He said, well, I saw that, they have, that we have one dog and they had four. I saw that we have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden. They have a creek that has no end. We have imported, imported lanterns in our garden and they have the stars at night. Our patio goes to the end of the front yard. Theirs goes to the edge of the horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on. They have fields that go beyond our sight. We have, we have servants and maids that serve us. They have each other to serve each other. We buy our food, they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us. They have friends around them to protect them. Dad, he said, thank you for reminding me how poor we are. (laughs) And if you've traveled on the mission field, you've traveled to other countries, you see the happy families that have far less than us. Happiness is not found in our stuff. It's found in relationship. With the Lord. And that's why we have to stop and say, our Father who put the stars in the sky, the planets in the place, who causes the, uh, the, the sun to rise and the rain to fall, you're my daddy. And you're taking care of me. And I can trust you. And I want to be used by you to be a blessing to other people that need to know you. And that's why as a church we do these things like put together shoeboxes. Because there are other children need to know there's a generous God out there. And we put together a Thanksgiving basket with the hope that that family would say, thank you, God, that you cared enough for me that you made this this package show up at my doorstep. God allows us to participate because you'll, you'll never be more like God than when you give yourself away. The most famous verse of all scripture, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave what was most precious to him. You'll never be more like God than when you give something important to you away to someone else if you have never known that God, he's an awesome God. He's not a God to be afraid of. He's a God that cares for you. Some of you in this place have come to church, you've been wounded in the past, and and religion has hurt you, but you need to know God loves you far more than you can ever imagine. And God wants you to be part of his family so he can put you together and then through you, bless other people. And so in your bulletin notes today is a place for you to take some time every day this week, starting with today, Identify three things that you're grateful for. And tomorrow, find three more different things that you're grateful for. And as we enter this month of Thanksgiving, let our hearts truly be filled with gratitude to a God who's made us rich. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are incredibly rich. I feel richer even talking about it today, Lord. And I thank you that you've given me the, uh, the opportunity to give to this church, to, to give to kids around the world, to give to families in our community. Thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us the privilege to partner with you in what you're doing in this world to show people that there is a God that cares and that he loves them. So use us, Father. I pray that we'd have a thousand shoeboxes that go out this year. I pray, Lord, that we would do a couple hundred Thanksgiving baskets again this year, Lord. I pray that, that people would see generosity flow because we're gonna have fun doing it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.